Hey, well, take your Bible and turn with me to Psalm 145. And I want to compound on something I've been studying recently, and I've been able to do it in a brief format, but I want to be able to turn your attention to Psalm 145 this morning, even in light of what Harry was just mentioning from Psalm 113, that we're at the beginning of a new year. One of the realities that we see constantly throughout Scripture is that your life and my life are vapors. Ecclesiastes uses the word habel to describe that your life is a mere breath. And the idea there is when I was growing up in Chicago, I used to be able to go outside and I would breathe a breath into the cold air and as quickly as I did so, it would be gone. It was like a whisper in the wind. And that's what the Bible says your life and my life are like. It is like a weaver's shuttle, Job says. It's gone. You don't know what your life will look like tomorrow. In fact, you might not even reach tomorrow. Our life is transitory. It's fleeting. It's unpredictable. And it'll soon be gone. One generation comes and another one goes and the world will wage on. And there may be in your heart and mind, even as you begin a new year, a desire and a prayer to leave a legacy. Each new year, maybe there's a renewed just determination of your heart and prayer of your own heart. I want my life to last. Maybe you're familiar with the line by C.T. Studd. He says, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will what? Last. And then that quote was really the conviction that gripped and grabbed the young man, Jim Elliott, who said, I want to live my life for Jesus Christ. And as we begin a new year, I want to, to today observe the only legacy that truly matters. And to do so, I want to look at Psalm 145. This is the last psalm of David, and it is the last of eight acrostic psalms in the Bible, whereas each verse begins with the successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Out of the 150 psalms, 75 of them are ascribed to David, the shepherd king. And for this reason, Spurgeon's commentary on the psalms is known as the treasury of David, because through the psalms, David becomes the hymn writer for all of God's people. And David here is going to save his best for last. This is his psalm of praise. If you look at the introduction at the top of the psalm, it just says a psalm of praise. And this is the one time in the entire Psalter where you read this introduction. You may think that all psalms are psalms of praise, but this is the one time in the Psalter that this is what David includes. This is his swan song. This is his final anthem, his magnum opus. And this is David's expression that he wants his life to last for the glory of God. And he wants to do so for one main reason. He's consumed with the greatness of God. And that's the great theme of this psalm. The way we're going to outline this passage today is by observing five responses to the greatness of God. Five responses to the greatness of God. And what we are going to see is that invariably, these five responses to who God is are the hallmarks of a life that lasts on the scales of eternity Can I ask you a question before we begin? Do you want your life to last? Do you want to leave a legacy that matters? Do you want to be a good steward of the one life that God has given to you to live? Well, then we need to listen to the scripture this morning because the first response to the greatness of God in verse one is humility. David says in verse one, I will extol you, my God, O king, and I will bless your name, forever and ever. Maybe you're wondering, where do you see humility in this verse? Well, to extol God, it says, I will extol you, my God, O King. To extol God means to lift high and to elevate the name of God. And only those who are brought low 
can appropriately lift high God's name. Think with me. David is the most powerful king on planet earth. As David walks by people, do you know what they're singing? Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. David is a mighty warrior. He's a poet and he's a powerful king. And yet he understands something fundamental. I am king because I have been anointed. God is king because he is the supreme ruler and reigner over all creation. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is a great and exalted king. This is where praise begins. No man can praise God. No man can lead his family in the ways of God without this proper footing. And that is humility. David says in 1b, I will bless your name forever and ever. To bless God is the Hebrew word barak. It means to praise. It means to adore. But it also means something else. We see that same word in Psalm 95 verse 6 where it says, come let us worship and bow down. And it says this, let us, anybody know? Kneel before the Lord our God, our maker. To bless God is to kneel down before him. Why? Because you cannot worship God. You cannot live a life that lasts. You cannot praise God if you are high. You must be brought low. God is, in Isaiah 6, what? Lofty and exalted. And the only ones that comprehend his greatness and his glory are those who are appropriately bowed down in humility. Andrew Murray, in his little book entitled Humility, says this, here is the path to the higher life, down, lower down, just as water always seeks and fills the lowest place. So the moment God finds men low and empty, his glory and power flow in to exalt and to bless them. Humility is the soil where praise blooms. And humility is the cornerstone of a life that lasts. It's the proper response to the greatness of God. Secondly here, we see that not only is humility a response to the greatness of God, but there's this resolve, secondly, in verses one and two again, a resolve or determination to honor God because he is so great. I want you to notice something in verses one and two, four times. I will extol you, my God, O king. I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and I will praise your name forever and ever. Humility does not mean that there is a lack of determination to honor God. David is resolved and committed to glorifying God with his life. I will, I will, I will, I will. Later on in the psalm, and as David does often throughout the Psalter, he will encourage the people of God to join him in this corporate worship of God. But David understands that corporate commitment to honoring God begins with an individual determination and resolve. I am going to live for God if no one else around me does. This resolve is the logical response to a God who is so great. How great is God? Well, he tells us in verse three, great is the Lord, highly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. I've been deep sea fishing a few times. I'm not much of an outdoorsman, but I like the water and the tuna tastes pretty good. And when you're out in the boat in the middle of the ocean, there's a monitor there and it tells you how deep the ocean is beneath you. And they measure that depth, and anybody know? In fathoms. 
A fathom is six feet deep. It is a derivative of a man's outstretched arms, or 1.8 meters. And there you will see on the monitor that the ocean beneath you is 100 fathoms deep. Therefore, it's 600 feet deep. And you go, man, that's a massive number. I cannot believe that the ocean goes down 600 feet from here. A big number, but nonetheless, fathomable. But here's something you need to know about God's greatness. God's greatness is not fathomable. It is unsearchable. It is beyond measure. You could not quantify the greatness of God. And for this reason, David says, his greatness is unsearchable. You will never be able to reach the depths of his glory and grandeur. And David is gripped by this. And he realizes that the more he ascends in his knowledge of God, the more he realizes that he is just at the foothold of understanding just how great his God is. And this greatness of God is the fuel that drives a commitment to honoring God. David knows that praise is a reasonable response to who God is, right? That's what it says in Romans 12 too. It says, you know, that you are not to be, or that you are, therefore I beseech you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. And it says, this is your reasonable service of worship, meaning that it's only logical for you to lay down your life on the altar to a God who is so great. It's logical. But David understands that even when that feeling wanes, his commitment and determination is what carries him when he doesn't feel like it. He's not waiting to praise God when the moment feels right. He is resolved to do so. In the fall of 1722, Jonathan Edwards, when he was a teenager, began to write his resolutions. And by the following year, on August 17, 1723, he penned his 70th and final resolution that would provide the framework for his entire life. He's just a young man at this point, and he knew that if he was going to be changed by God, and he knew that if he was going to be used by God, there is a God-empowered determination to live exclusively for him. I want to highlight a few of those resolutions by Edwards. He says in number four, Resolve never to do any manner of thing, whether in soul or body, but what tends to the glory of God. Number 17, resolved that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. It's so easy to read that sentence. Let me read that one more time. Resolve that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. Number 53, resolved to cast and venture my soul on the Lord Jesus Christ, to trust and confide in him, and to consecrate myself wholly to him. July 8th, 1723. George Marston, in his biography of Jonathan Edwards, said this, Jonathan Edwards directed his resolutions towards plugging every gap that would allow distraction from what he saw as his only worthy activity, which was to glorify God here's what you need to understand. And here's what the scripture teaches. No one lives a godly life on accident. No one. Sometimes, you know, you watch, I, I used to watch scouting videos of athletes. And, you know, this guy, he's a European player. He's a freak athlete. And if he just applies himself, he's going to be the next Dirk Nowitzki or whatever. And then later on, it'll be like, this guy was a bust. Why? because he didn't apply himself. But here's what you need to understand about 
what it means to be a Christian. No one has a competitive advantage in regards to their godliness. No one's seven foot and buff out of their mind when it comes to knowing and experiencing Christ. We start at the same proper footing. Obviously, people are stewards of the environment, the church, the background, the familial structure that they grew in. But no one has just a competitive advantage in regards to their relationship with God. Godliness must be pursued. And you cannot live a life that matters unintentionally. David is saying, if no one else on planet Earth honors God, I will. But this being said, even with Edwards, before he penned his first resolution, he offered a preparatory word. He says this, being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. This preface undergirds the 70 resolutions that follow. Resolutions without God's grace and without God's power availeth nothing but resolutions accompanied by grace, girded by prayer, and enabled through the Holy Spirit is transformative. Here's what I think the scripture teaches us. A commitment to honor God is not the antonym of reliance upon God. Paul says that he buffeted his body so that he would honor God. Daniel refused to eat the king's food. It says in Daniel 1.8 that he purposed in his heart as a 14, 15-year-old young man, I am going to honor God. And David here is determined. I will, I will, I will, I will. God is so great. How could I offer him my leftovers? I want to commit my life to him. I see him lofty and high. I've been humbled. And I'm determined. So there's this humility. Secondly, this resolve. And then third here, in the following verses, there's a proper view of stewardship. I want to focus on this for a moment. Those who revel in the greatness of God are passionate about passing down the truth of God and the love of God to the following generations. I called my grandma recently, my dad's mother. She was saved at this church in 1970. Um, I wanted to get a little bit more understanding about the Artavanis family tree. Her maiden name is Dunlap, and her first name is actually Myrna. She goes by Joan, and I understand why. Myrna, Joan, Artavanis. My grandpa was a full Greek man, and his dad, my great-grandfather, was named Athanasius, Athanasius Artavanis, a baller name, I know. (laughs) I've never met my great-grandpa he had six children. He immigrated from Baltimore, or to Baltimore from Greece. When he arrived in Baltimore, he started a bakery, and then he moved to Santa Monica, and he started a restaurant called the Spaghetti House, a Greek-owned Italian restaurant. <laughs> On my wife's side of the family, Katie's great-grandma was named Winifred Klosterman. She was born in 1894. And in 1942, she wrote an article for Reader's Digest entitled, 15 Babies Are Not Enough. In the article, she reflects on her 30 years of marriage and the 15 babies she bore and raised during the Great Depression. This is in the Reader's Digest. She says this, quote, we pulled through those depression years better than most families, not in spite of our children, but because of them. 
one insurmountable problem has always been the bathroom. With one bathroom and 17 Klosterman's, we had to be on a precise schedule. She says this, many a time I got supper for the family, I did the dishes, put the children to bed, and had a new baby the next morning. She says, twice when the roads were deep with mud or snow, the babies arrived before the doctor. Her last sentence of the article reads this, but when I try to think of the things I have done for my children, I find myself thinking only of what they have done for me. I wish I had a dozen more like them. And it says, dot, 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 well, at least one more anyway. You may be asking, why the family history, Johnny? Here's why. Other than the fact that my great-grandpa, Athanasius, came here from Greece and started a restaurant in Santa Monica, and other than this article about Katie's great-grandma, I know nothing else about my great-grandparents. Nothing. You, who just heard me say that, know as much about my great-grandparents as I do. And this is the message the Bible wants to punch in your face. You are going to die. You are going to be forgotten. Go, go walk past a cemetery because the, the tombstones preach the strongest sermons. You're going to die. And the Bible is telling you there is only one thing worth living for. Your great-grandchildren will know you only by name. My daughter, Lily, she's in the Sunday school right now, probably pounding some goldfish. She, Lord willing, is going to have some kids who have kids. That will be Lily's children, grandchildren. They will have a faint idea of who I am. But Lily's great-grandchildren, which would be my great-great-grandchildren, won't even know I existed. And this is what Ecclesiastes is going to say over and over again. One generation comes, and everyone's going to be forgotten. And then the question is, if this is reality... How am I supposed to live my life? My 70 or 80 years, Moses says. Well, there's only one legacy that that lasts, and it's verse 4. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Can I draw a couple observations for you? First of all, it does not say one generation shall tell your works to another. It says one generation, what's the, what do you have in your Bibles? Mine says praise. Does anybody have a laud, commend? Hebrew it is sabah. And it means to come to a point of understanding where your primary responsibility as a parent is not just to pass down the torch of truth, It is to exult in who God is, to revel in his word, so that you are praising God down to the next generation. You're not just telling them that God is great. You are exhibiting for them and to them. God is so great and glorious. He grips me and he grabs me and I cannot help. I cannot help. But to magnify his name to you, to exult means to triumph. It's not enough for you to teach and train your children in the truth. They must see you praise the truth down. Uh, Joel Beakey, last year, he came in and he did a message in here on family worship. I listen to Joel Beakey quite often, and one of the things that he says is um, one of the greatest things about his dad is he said he never had to doubt the existence of God because when his dad prayed, he knew he was talking to someone real. And that's always stuck with me because each generation's responsibility is to model for the next generation what it looks like to know God intimately and personally. 
I like what Piper says in this regard. He says, teachers and parents who do not exult over God in their teaching will not bring about exaltation in God. Dry, unemotional, indifferent teaching about God, whether at home or at church, is a half-truth at best. It says one thing about God and portrays another thing. It is inconsistent. It says God is so great, but teaches as if God is not great. Here's what we believe. Christianity is grounded in right thinking, but it is more than just right thinking. It is right feeling about God. Sometimes in our context from a, you know, in a world that elevates feeling at the expense of truth, we can miss the reality that in Psalm 145 verse 4, it says, one generation shall praise your works to another. Education is not the end. It is the means to the end, and the end is exaltation in who God is. Your goal for your children and your goal for your grandchildren and the goal for every single child and every single classroom at every single church is not just a head full of facts. It is a heart full of fire for God. And that heart full of fire for God is modeled when the the preceding generation praises the works of God down to them, meaning that the next generation will never be that which they don't first see. Your children, your students, your teens, they are worshipers. They were made to bow down, and they will either bow down and worship God, or they will bow down and worship idols. And so the word here is so important that we are to praise the works down to the following generation. I think it's important for us to just think about it for a moment. When a person or when a child stops worshiping God, they don't become a non-worshipper. They become a worshiper of idols, and maybe in our own context, they worship things like career, reputation, sex, lust, people, picket fences, and perfect kids. And it's even possible within our own American church culture, there is a looming temptation to be more committed to polishing the idols within your own child's heart than instilling in them a passion for God. There is often more involvement with a father and a son teaching the son to keep his eye on the ball than there is a commitment for a father to teach his son to keep his eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. Until your children, and I think this is what David is getting at, until your children and the next generation are persuaded, I must have God or I am missing something, they will never know him or truly love him. And so David here, it's so easy to miss this word in regards to praising your works to another and declaring your mighty acts. He is calling us to be mindful that the picture of God many people present to their children is too small to dispel the curiosity of the world. But sensuality will seem shallow. The world will seem unattractive when they've been captivated by a supreme view of God when their parents and grandparents and children and mentors and youth staff are praising down the works of God. Modern evangelicalism says that to be a Christian is to pray a prayer. But that's not what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is someone who experiences that God is the most satisfying reality in the world. Psalm 1611 says, you will make known to me the way of life. In your presence there is what? You know it. Fullness of joy. In your right hand there are what? Pleasures forevermore. We're not just to pass the truth. We're to model what it means to exult in who God is and to relish in God's character and his word. 
I want to just read this passage for you in Deuteronomy 6 that you know well. It says this, Hear, Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Watch this. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You cannot pass down that which you don't first possess. You're going to teach them to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Deuteronomy is saying that, that has to grab your own heart before you can ever exhibit it. Your, your children will not go past you. This has to be on your heart. And it says, and you shall repeat them diligently to your sons and speak of them when you sit in the house, when you walk on the road, and when you lie down, when you get up. Listen, the next generation is not going to love God if, they're, if their relationship with God is once a week on Sunday mornings or a prayer that's perfunctory before a meal. Deuteronomy is saying that you are to let God rule over your, your schedule when you sit in the house, when you walk on the road, when you lie down, when you get up. I want you to look with me for a moment. Keep your finger in Psalm 145 and turn with me to Joshua chapter 3 for a moment. Because we're focusing right now on an understanding of the stewardship we have in response to the greatness of God. In Joshua chapter 3, here's, let me set the stage for you. The people of God are about to enter the promised land. Moses is dead and God is going to elevate and exalt, really, Joshua as the leader of the people. And he's going to tell Joshua that just as Moses has loved the people, so you are even now. And God is going to give the people a reminder of his power and provision. And let me read for you, follow with me in chapter three, verse nine. They get to the river, Jordan. It says, then Joshua said to the sons of Israel, three, nine, come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. Joshua said, by this you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will assuredly dispossess from you the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Hivite, the Perizzite, the Girgashite, the Amorite, and the Jebusite. Some future names for you. It says, behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over ahead of you into the Jordan. Now then, take for yourself 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one man for each tribe. It shall come about when the soles of the feet of the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan will be cut off and the waters which are flowing down from above will stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to cross the Jordan with the priests carrying the ark of the covenant before the people, and when those who carried the ark came into the Jordan and the feet of the priests carrying the ark were dipped into the edge of the water for the Jordan overflows all its banks all the days of the harvest, the waters, this is key, which were flowing down from above stood and rose up in one heap a great distance away at Adam, the city that is beside Zerathon and those who were flowing down toward the sea of the Arabah, the salt sea, were completely cut off. So the people crossed opposite Jericho. And the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan, while all Israel crossed on dry ground until all the nation had finished crossing. Now, God is just reminding the people, and I'm going to read just a little more section in just a moment. God is reminding the people, okay, you think what I did for you was once upon a time? I'm going to show you that I am a great God. Remember what I did at the Red Sea? I can do that anytime I want. Remember what I did with the plagues in Egypt? I can do that anytime I want. God does, he's not exerting energy when he destroys a nation, he's a supreme sovereign over all the universe. And he's going to give them just a little bit of a reminder. And you're wondering, why did God split the sea? Why don't they just go around, or the river? Why don't they just go around it? Here's why. Let's keep reading. Four. 
4.1, now when all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord spoke to Joshua saying, take for yourself 12 men from the people, one man from each tribe. He then says, and command them saying, take up for yourself 12 stones from here out of the middle of the Jordan from the place where the priest's feet are standing firm and carry them over with you and lay them down in the lodging place where you will lodge tonight. So Joshua called the 12 men whom he had appointed from the sons of Israel, one man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, cross again to the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. And each one of you take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes to the sons of Israel. Let this be a sign among you, so that when your children ask you later, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall say to them, because the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall become a memorial to the sons of Israel forever. Thus the sons of Israel did as Joshua commanded and took up 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, just as the Lord spoke to Joshua, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Israel. And they carried them over with them to the lodging place and put them down there. Now, just look with me for a moment at verse 20 of chapter four. Those 12 stones, which they had taken from the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the sons of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, what are these stones? Then you shall inform your children, saying, Israel crossed this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you, until you had crossed, just as the Lord your God had done to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, so that you may fear the Lord your God for how long? Forever. These stones were to be set up as literal billboards, signposts. You know, in the song, Come Thou Fount, we sing, Here I Raise My Ebenezer. And Ebenezer's not a goblet. It is a monument where each time they were passed, little boys, dad, daddy, daddy, what is that? Oh, let me tell you, son, that is a billboard that testifies and is a perpetual witness of the greatness of God. He has rescued us at every stage. He's provided for us. He's protected us. And these were to be chimes if you will, that reminded parents and reminded students and reminded the children for every single generation, our God is great, he is glorious, he's worthy to be worshiped. Now, here's what happens though. Just turn over with me to Judges chapter two for a moment. Following book, the heading of this section in Josh, or Judges 2.6 is entitled, Joshua Dies, in my Bible. It says in 2.6, when Joshua had dismissed the people, the sons of Israel went each to his inheritance to possess the land. The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua, who had seen all the great work of the Lord which he had done for Israel. Then Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the territory of the inheritance in Timnath Harris in the hill country of Fran, north of Mount Gosh. All that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. My Bible has a, a heading for the following section, starting in verse 11. Does yours? Mine says, Israel serves. Bales. The main commandment in Deuteronomy and Joshua is remember, 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 remember. Every single time you pass this, 
You are to commend, to laud, to praise the works of God down to the following generation. And it's one generation after that which followed Joshua. It says they did not know the Lord and they did not know the work which he had done for Israel. They were so busy taking the promised land, they forgot to pass on the goodness of God. Every generation is made to worship, and it'll either serve Yahweh or Baal. Idols look different in every era, but our heart is a factory of idols. And so the people of God are to command, to laud, to praise the works of God down to another, and they're not to do so in a shy, brief, nonchalant conversation. It tells us exactly how we're to do that. If you look back with me to Psalm 145. It says in verse 5, on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works I will meditate. It's not enough to just glance at the works of God. You must meditate. You must think. And then I want to focus for a moment on verse 6. It says, men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts. And I will tell of your greatness. In our world, I wonder if you went and grabbed a kid in a third grade classroom today and said, hey, buddy, grab three friends and I want you to imitate the conversations that you think daddies have. I wonder what they would say. Put on a skit for me. And, and let me know what you think adult men talk about. Fitness, 401ks, golf, God bless them, whatever else it might be. I just wonder if there was an eight-year-old that would say, oh, when the men get together, they speak of the power of the greatness of God. They speak of his awesome acts. They don't talk about themselves very much. Watch this in verse seven. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. I, I wonder if you took those same group of boys and you said, okay, son, I want you to imitate for me a man in the church singing. I wonder what they would do. Amazing grace. I wonder if they would say, oh, how would you define it? I wonder if the boy would say, it's a joyful shouting. Because God is so great that when my dad shows up to church, he's not giving half-hearted effort to praising the name of God. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness. I can't wait to get to the people of God today, son. I can't wait to dive into his word and I can't wait to sing because I love to shout joyfully. This is a war cry. Why? Verse eight. Why is there such profound levels of joy? Because the Lord is gracious. He gives to us what we don't deserve. He's merciful. He doesn't give us what we do deserve. He's slow to anger. He doesn't punish us when we need to be punished. And he's got a long fuse, and he's great in loving kindness. There's a love here that will not let us go. This is God's covenant love. Verse 9 says, the Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all of his works. Dad, why do you sing so loud? Mr. So-and-so, why do you sing so loud? 
real easy, buddy. The Lord is gracious. He's merciful. He's slow to anger. And he is overfilling with loving kindness. And that love is not just a doctrine I affirm. Romans 5.5 5 says that love has been poured out into my heart through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit in Romans 8 testifies within my own soul that I'm a child of God. That love is for me. And John 15 says that I am to abide in that love. I've tasted and seen that love. What's the response? Well, the fourth response to the greatness of God in verse 10 is gratitude. Humility, resolve, stewardship, gratitude. Verse 10, all your work shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your godly ones shall bless you. The human instinct is thanklessness, not thankfulness. But all of God's works and all of God's children are to live lives of gratitude. The Bible recognizes ingratitude as a distinguishing mark of an unbeliever. 2 Timothy 3 describes the condition of fallen man. And then he provides 15 different classifications or designations of someone who does not know God. 15 of them. Lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good. I just counted 14. I might have missed one. But forgive me. But in the middle of that list is ungrateful. Sandwiched between brutal, haters of good, lovers of money, malicious gossips is unthankful. But here it says in Psalm 145.10, all your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your godly ones shall bless you. Gratitude is so important for the Christian life. And now I want you to just think about, we could go into great detail here, but Harry told me I could only preach for two hours. The, the main thing is, here's, here's, here's what gratitude does. First of all, it says in Philippians 4.6, be anxious for nothing, but by prayer and supplication, what? With thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Why is thanksgiving so important to the peace that we have from God? Because thankfulness is the way that we impress the truth of Scripture upon our hearts. It's one thing to say that God is sovereign. It's another thing to rejoice and express the gratitude that God is sovereign because that's what God uses as the vehicle to assure you that his sovereignty is true. Gratitude also dispels impurity. In Ephesians 5, it says, be imitators of God. It says, let no sexual immorality be amongst you, but rather give what? Thanks. Why? Because when you come across something in your life that you cannot thank God for, an alarm goes off in your own conscience. If it's something that I cannot thank God for, it's not something that I'm going to participate in. But gratitude is also so important because it is the fuel of a life that lasts. Because you're thankful for God, thankful people share. They express what they're thankful for. They speak of the glory of your kingdom. Verse 11, look at this. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. I wonder if you were to grab your son or your daughter or a young man, maybe you don't have kids. Maybe you just need to go grab a student. Maybe you just need to go grab some random person. Maybe you need to go serve in youth ministry and just grab them and say, what class are you studying? What are you studying in history? Well, talk to me about the Assyrian Empire, buddy, in the dust. Talk to me about the Babylonian Empire, buddy. Where is it? In the dust. 
Talk to me about the German Empire. Sorry, Marco. In the dust. <laughs> Talk to me about all those empires. They're gone. They're forgotten. But the godly men, they speak of the glory of an everlasting kingdom. They talk of his power. They make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. Why? Verse 13, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures throughout all generations. Every single thing that you're facing right now and every single dominant personality or ruler or reigner right now is going to be buried. God's kingdom is from everlasting to everlasting. There's also this gratitude and I know I've got to land the plane here in a moment. There's a gratitude in verse 14 because the Lord is not only lofty and exalted, he sustains the downcast. He's near to the crushed. The Lord sustains all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. In verse 15, we're thankful because God provides. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due time. Not only does God provide our needs, he satisfies the soul. You open your hand, verse 16, and satisfy the desire of every living thing. And aren't you grateful that verse 17 is true? A God who is love without being righteous is mere sentimentality. And a God who is righteous without being loving gives us much reason to dread. But God is both righteous and loving. Verse 17, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. Fifth and finally here, The fifth response to the greatness of God is a nearness to his word. Verse 18 says, The Lord is near to all those who call upon him, to all those who call upon him in truth. God is omnipresent. You understand that. He's, he's everywhere because he's spirit. But God is particularly near to those who call. But not just to those who call. He's particularly near to those who call upon him in what? In truth. The only way you can know God and be struck by his greatness and the only way that you can live a life that lasts is if your life is tethered and near to God's word. I wonder, is this the model that you're exhibiting for the next generation? I want to just maybe make an obvious observation about even my own life. You can attend a church that is committed to the word of God and not be personally committed to the word of God. That much is obvious. You can show up here and even express the gratitude for the fidelity to scripture and a generationally gifted, faithful preacher, and yet in your own life, not live near to God as revealed in his word. But if you want your life to last, and if you want to live life with a capital L, you're going to be near to his word. In verse 19, we see really a, a paradox. He will fulfill the desires of those who fear him. Fear and fulfillment appear like antonyms, but in scripture, they're conjoined twins. He will also hear their cry and will save them. The Lord keeps all who love him. A wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak of the praise of the Lord and all flesh will bless his holy name forever and ever. I wonder, I wonder what your legacy will be. I wonder if you want your life to last. Even there's this quote maybe by, uh, I think it's von Zinzendorf, and he says that line, preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. Maybe you're familiar with that line. 
I think I understand the heart behind that quote, but here's what I want you to know. I'm so glad that he wasn't forgotten. I'm so glad Jim Elliott wasn't forgotten. I'm so glad that every single missionary biography that my parents read to me my entire life was not a story of a person that was forgotten. Do you know why? Because what you live for matters, and it matters to the next generation. I understand I will be forgotten, but what I live for I hope the following generations, and I hope this is true of you, I hope your grandchildren, they know. I don't know a lot about my grandpa. I don't know a lot about my great-grandpa, but I know he loved God, was committed to his word, and I knew that he knew that this life was a breath. It's a vapor, and his life was characterized by five responses to the greatness of God, humility, determination, He was a good steward. He was grateful for God's provision, kindness, love, mercy. And he loved the book. He loved God and he loved his word. And these five hallmarks are characterizations of a life that lasts. Let's pray. God, we love you. And we are thankful for your word. Thank you so much for Cornerstone. Thank you for this church. Thank you for Pastor John MacArthur the impact and the influence he's been on thousands of churches around the world. Thankful for the, just the faithfulness of the leaders and the shepherds in this fellowship group or Mark Tatlock and Harry and Nate Buznitz and Lord, we're just thankful, Lord, for your word. Lord, I pray that you would, through your Holy Spirit, preach a stronger sermon than I ever could. Tie us and tether us to your son, Jesus Christ, because we can do nothing apart from you. So God, I pray that this would not leave us to just go try to be blindly determined by our own bootstraps, but fully reliant upon the Spirit of God. And we pray with Moses, this Lord, confirm the work of our hands, establish the work of our hands as we rely and depend on you. We pray this in your name and all God's people said, amen.